Our scripture for today is 1 John chapter 3, verses 1 through 3. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Amen. A student, a child, really is like a backpack. Like a backpack. How they're made determines how they'll hold up under pressure. How they're made determines how they'll hold up under pressure. I got to go hiking not too long ago with some friends of mine, and we each carried a backpack with us on the hike. And as I found out, not all backpacks are created equal. Uh, One of the friends I got to go hiking with is a longtime friend of mine, a a pastor friend of mine uh, named James. And James is nothing like me. James James is an African-American man from inner-city Detroit, Six foot four, 270 pounds. Yeah. And James does not like the outdoors. Before we went on this hike together and later on a river, uh, he looked at me and said, man, this is the whitest thing we've ever done together. He said, I'm real nervous about it. He said, Morgan, black lives matter. I said, I know they do, James. But James, because he's so nervous about being outdoors and on this hike, he, 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 he goes and he buys every bit of high-end camping equipment that he could find. And he went to REI before our trip, and I think the sales guy there uh, probably got a promotion because he figured out who James was, uh, sensed his fear, and sold him one of the very expensive thing in the store. And one of the things that he sold my friend James was this high-end backpack. The thing I'm sure was probably made out of some space-age material, you know, Kevlar or something, and uh, had this ergonomic design, super comfortable straps, could fit an enormous amount of, of material and, 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 you know, and, and weight in such a small space. And it actually it came with room for a bladder, a bladder, an inflated, that's what it's called, this inflatable pouch that you could put in it and fill it with water or some kind of energy drink, and then it's got a straw, it's a plastic straw that runs from the bladder over your backpack and into the front where you can take a drink when you need it. And, and by the way, uh, when your big black friend asks you in front of a group of people on a trail uh, if you'll fill his bladder for him, <laughs> the answer is always, yes, James, I will. I'll fill your bladder for you. The point is, all other backpacks paled in comparison to his. Mine was literally my son's from kindergarten like seven years ago and had been beaten to death and I probably shouldn't have pressed its luck on the trail. The, the point is, again, not all backpacks are the same. How they're made determines how they'll hold up under the pressure of the journey. Same is true of a child, of a student, of their life. And so this morning I just want to ask, I'd like to ask, what are we putting into the lives of our young people here? What do we want to put into the lives of our, our students? What are we believing to impart, to put in, to weave into the fabric of who our children are so that when they get on later in life, on, down the trail, on that journey, they can pull something out and look at it and say, yes, yes, I've needed that all along. So I want to preach three values to you this morning from that passage in 1 John, then give you some ultra-practical ways to apply it 
at the end. Three values I want to talk about this morning. I want to talk about hope and holiness and finally a heart for home. One, Let's begin here with hope, and uh, we read a few verses, as you can see from the book of First John. First John was written by one of Jesus' disciples, named John, near the end of John's life. And John here, in that letter, he's writing to these early first century churches. He's looking back on his life, first is following Jesus as a young man, as a young fisherman, and now as an older man who's leading churches. And in the middle of this amazing letter... John here in chapter 3, he just goes off on this tangent and he's talking about what else? He's talking about the love of God. Love of God. He's like a, he's like a teenage girl, you know, who can't get her mind off that one thing. Come on, y'all have had that conversation, right? You try to talk about anything, but she always manages to bring it back to what's on top of her mind, right? Love, love. And that's what John's doing here. He can't stop talking about it. And in the passage, he goes on to say, one day, this great love, Jesus, he's going to return. I know it sounds nuts, but I heard, it, I heard him say it himself, and I'm tending to believe any man I see die and then rise from the dead. He said, I heard, it say, heard him say it himself. It's going to be amazing. But then John drops this stunner of a statement on you, and he says this, verse 3. He says, and everyone who thus hopes or hopes in him like this, purifies himself as he is pure. What's he doing? Oh, John here. He's making a connection between two things, two values, and he's showing you how the first one leads to the second. Those two things are hope and holiness. Let's look at them in turn. First, the idea of hope. Did you know that human beings are unavoidably hope-based creatures. Did you know that about yourself? You are. What you believe about your future determines your actions in the present. And as you may have heard me say before, I know this from what happens in my home almost every night. Almost every single night at the dinner table, dinner appears. Magically, right, Carrie? Yeah, magically. Before four hungry little mouths, and uh, because we're loving parents, we'll place on their plate one, if not two, vegetable options. And every night, one question is asked, if I eat my vegetables, will I get dessert? And if the answer to that question is yes, there is the hope of dessert in your future. There's a glorious and sugar-drenched possibility awaiting you. Then a child, a kid who previously swore he would never be able to get down a a choke down a a carrot or some kind of leaf under any circumstances can now actually figure out how to get it down. Isn't that amazing? Why? Because human beings are hope-based creatures. Our belief in the future impacts, shapes, drives our behavior in the present. So let me ask you, as a human being, what is your future? What's our future. Let me give you two options. One, a generation ago, the famous, famous atheist, an atheist is a person who doesn't believe there's a God, famous atheist Bertrand Russell said this about your future, our future. It's a long quote, hang in there. He said that man is the product of causes which had no provision of the end they were achieving. That his origin, his growth, his hopes and fears, his loves and his beliefs are but the outcome of accidental collocation of atoms, that no fire, no heroism, no intensity of thought and feeling can preserve an individual life beyond the grave, 
That all the labors of the ages, all the devotion, all the inspiration, all the noonday brightness of human genius are destined to die, destined to extinction in the vast death of the solar system. And that the whole temple of man's achievement must inevitably be buried beneath the debris of a universe in ruins. All these things, if not quite beyond dispute, are yet so nearly certain that no philosophy which rejects them can hope to stand. Only within the scaffolding of these truths, only on the firm foundation of unyielding despair, can the soul's habitation henceforth be safely built. What's he saying? He's saying that there is no God, therefore no meaning and no hope. Everything will come to ruins and be forgotten. And you may get up in the morning. You you may look at your children or your loved one or your family or in the mirror. And you may think, uh, you know, I matter. My life matters. My children matter. But he's saying that you can't do this. You must get up every morning and pour yourself your raisin bran or your golden grams. Lift up your spoon and say, unyielding despair. Unyielding despair. That's what he says is what your heart needs to see. Unyielding despair. So let me ask, well, what happens when a whole generation is raised on that idea? A few years ago, a New York Magazine, a writer by the name of Noreen Malone summed it up in her article, which she called, she wrote called, Sucks to be Us, Coming of Age in Post-Hope America. And she talked about a conversation she had with her sister as an intellectual. They're both 20-somethings that had grown up with no God, no meaning, and they had come to this conclusion about their lives. She said, she wrote, our generation is delayed, afraid, immature, independent, fame and glory hungry, and weirdly apathetic when it comes to things outside of the internet. See, your belief in the future shapes your actions in the present. That's option one. Let me give you a second one. Years ago, when I was a campus missionary at the University of Texas, I met a a young man at our campus meeting, and some of you, a handful of you here may know him. He was a foreign exchange student from Vienna, Austria, named Johannes Hindler. He came from this prominent musical family in Austria. He was brilliant, handsome, and absolutely arrogant. But one night, he and another friend were walking across campus at UT Austin, where they heard the music from our campus meeting, and so they poked their heads right there in Calhoun 100, He poked his head in, and then he brought his body in, and then he stayed. And I met him after the meeting, and we struck up a a friendship, invited him to coffee, and he began to ask how I could possibly believe in a God that I couldn't see, how I could claim that Jesus was the only way to God. And we went back and forth, but he kept coming to our meetings. And after one Wednesday night, we had agreed to meet for coffee in the morning on a Thursday. And what I found that next morning when I showed up to meet him at 9 a.m. was somehow Everything had changed in the past 12 hours. He, I'll never forget it. He ran up to the table there in Jester, out of breath, this big goofy grin on his face. And I began to ask, well, what's going on? How you doing? But he cut me off and he said, Morgan, you will never guess what happened to me last night. So I went home, I went to bed and I had a dream. And in my dream, I was being paraded on a cross down the main street there in Vienna towards the main church. I was naked, hanging there. All my friends, all my family were there. They were mocking me, persecuting me. And I began to go down the street. And at the end of the street was the church where the face of God was, the presence of God was. And as I arrive at the place where the presence of God was, and I met him there, I woke up. 
He said, and I got up and my body began to feel like it was on fire. I thought something weird was happening to me. So I went and I got in the shower. I took a shower. The burning wouldn't stop. So I got down on my knees. I knew it was Jesus speaking to me. I prayed and I gave my heart to Jesus last night. Yeah. And he said, he said, everywhere I touch myself, I feel brand new all over. I'm like, I bet you do, buddy. finished his semester he went back to Vienna and he wrote me this letter he said it's been a while since we left Austin he and his girlfriend had a great time at your house Morgan before we left a lot has happened concerning my walk with God I just felt it would be good to let you know I know that there are big challenges waiting in Austria and I'm not going back without being prepared I'm ready for a battle for suffering for being laughed at ignored I'm ready for everything because I realize more than ever that without God, I am nothing, can do nothing, certainly can't be good. As it is a relief knowing that I'm weak, but that God is strong. I pray that I will go anywhere with God. I'm ready to give everything, even to die, because there is nothing less I can give my creator back, whom I previously betrayed and ignored. I love him too much to tell. Jesus, the single purpose for my being. With all the love I can give, I bow down before him and serve with all I have to give. That is the least I can do. I want to thank you in the name of the Lord for all the time you've spent talking to me and encouraging me with all the arguments I needed and in a way not needed because I did not find the way to Jesus by reasoning. I felt the presence of the Lord and that was what made me believe. Hmm. Yeah, Johanna, he went back to Austria. He led his girlfriend, his sister, his mother to Christ. He works in full-time ministry now. See, when he encountered a living hope, everything changed for him. What did he, what did he find? Oh, not unyielding despair, but a living hope, and it changed him. See, our kids, they need hope put in them. They need to be told they're made on purpose, for a purpose, for a reason, that God's got a great plan for them, that's given them gifts he actually expects them to use. They need to be told there's no one else like them. They're not an accident. And therefore, no one else can impact the world like them. Because there's a God, there's hope. Therefore, they can take risks. They don't have to live out Noreen Malone's list and be afraid at every turn, see. They need to hear there's hope beyond the walls of this world. And therefore, there's hope for them. And that's why we, you look your children in the eye, we'll look them in the eye, look you in the eye and say, there is hope for you in every situation, no matter what. We refuse despair. We embrace hope. And every time you tell your children that, every time you bring them here to hear that, you're putting something inside them, in their backpack, they're going to desperately need for the journey ahead. Number two, though, holiness. Oh, that's hope. Number two, holiness. Let's look at what that kind of hope actually produces in life. John says it's not just good feelings, but a real living hope in a real living God produces something specific. He says, and everyone who hopes in him like this purifies himself as he is pure. I love that. This word purify, it's a version of the word holy in the Greek. And John's saying, if you've got this living hope on the inside, it's going to show up and look like a holy life on the outside. So let's ask then, 
well, what's holiness? You've heard the word before, most likely. What's it look like in our lives? Well, the word again, holy, purify, it comes from a word that means to be set apart, to be put to the side for a purpose. See, hear this. Something that's holy isn't just moral because you can be moral without being holy. See, you can actually be highly moral and totally unholy because you can be moral for yourself. You can use your morality to look down on the people around you, can't you? You know that. Am I the only one here who's done that, right? feel good about me because I'm not like you, right? Morality is downwind of holiness. It's lower than holiness. To be holy is to be set apart for God's exclusive use. When I played college baseball at University of Houston, I don't think I ate a Snickers bar or had French fries for like three years. Why? Not because those things had ceased to be delicious, no. but because I could tell I, I suffered a loss in my already slow speed and already lack of strength whenever I ate those as to, compared to when I didn't. I literally felt slower when I ate stuff like that. I remember going through the line at Chick-fil-A there on campus and only eating the grilled stuff, refusing the fried stuff, and... But I never looked at those students eating the fried stuff and thought, man, I'm really doing good compared to you guys. No, no. Look at those slackers, you know, greasing their arteries with waffly goodness. No, I didn't. I said, no, I'm a part of something bigger than myself. I don't answer just to me anymore. Therefore, I will let go of what may taste good to me to achieve something I couldn't otherwise get on my own. See, I was setting myself apart. When I became a Christian in college, I was thankfully discipled in this campus ministry that challenged me to live a holy life. It valued holiness. They told me there was a living hope and that my life could reconcile other people's lives to God. They told me people on my campus needed to know Jesus. They weren't ready for death. And therefore, they needed me to live a holy life now that they could see. And they were right. I'm glad they told me that. I, you, I, we need to be challenged to live holy life. You need to live a holy life if you call yourself a Christian. See, everyone who has this hope, John said, everyone who has that hope will purify himself, will set himself apart. Everyone who has this hope acts like he has a hope. It's like she has a hope because there really is hope. And at the time I was dating this girl, she was a nice girl. She's a pastor's daughter, yeah. And when I really met Jesus and I surrendered my life to him and our relationship may have looked holy to others or by comparison or my teammates, but that's not the point. Comparing my behavior to others, that's only about morality. That's like looking at other students and feeling good because I'm not eating the French fries. It's not about them. It's what about me? my relationship with God. So I was dating this girl, gave my life to Jesus, and I thought, I cannot, I can't touch this girl anymore. I can't kiss this girl anymore. I don't know whether she's going to be my wife or not, first of all. And second of all, the odds are pretty low of that anyway. I'm 19 years old, don't have a car, own like 10 t-shirts, and live in a dorm room. (laughs) Marriage may not be the thing I need to be thinking about right now. And so I stopped kissing her, which freaked her out and freaked out her minister father. He asked, what's wrong with you? What's wrong with this guy? I know. Now, I probably didn't communicate very well what's happening to me on the inside, right? 
All I knew is that I had to drive to live a holy life because I had a hope. We broke up. I was single for six years. Of course, it felt like forever, which it wasn't. It just feels that way when you're in your early 20s. And, and then Carrie and I began dating when I was 25. And from the beginning, we spoke about having these firm physical boundaries. Why? Because everyone who has this hope purifies himself. And so we decided from the beginning that our first kiss was going to be at the wedding altar when the minister said, you may now kiss your bride. And I'm not sure it was entirely her conviction, but <laughs> it was mine and it was ours. And we stuck to it. Stuck to it. Our first kiss was at the wedding altar. Let's just say after that, we made up for lost time. <laughs> now, that may... That may sound strange to you, seem extreme to you, may not be your story, and you may be right about all of that, but do you know what I have? I've got a wife who knows she can trust me when I'm not with her immediately, when we're apart. I've got a story to give my children, and for me in my life, I had a sacrifice I could give to God, my sanctification being set apart. See, everyone who has this hope will purify himself, John says. And if today, if there's some area you're recognizing right now as a lack of holiness in your life, let me tell you, it's because there's a lack of hope somewhere. You don't believe God's really for you in that area. He's got something great for you. See, God knows your lack. He knows he's able to provide for you. If you'll just trust him and your set apartness, your holiness, oh, it makes space for the power of God to come in, for him to bless you because he sees and you know that that thing doesn't own you anymore. See, my heart here is that our children, youth students at Mosaic would love holiness, embrace holiness, love being set apart for God's exclusive use. Number three, if we do these two, it actually leads us to an interesting place that John hints at here, leads us to having a heart for home. John goes on, he says, the reason why the world does, current present tense, does not know us is that it did not know him. I love this. John's saying, I'm actually okay with the world not understanding me and this whole hope and holiness thing, man, this whole purity thing may seem weird to the world, weird to people out there. I'm okay with being marginalized, made fun of, thought of as strange for having a hope in Jesus and living in a holy way. They don't get it because they don't get him. And John says, I'm okay with that. But you'll notice here, he doesn't just say the world doesn't get me. He says the world doesn't get us, us, us. See, John, no matter how old he gets, he doesn't see himself as not a part of, not connected to the church. See, what's he doing in this letter? As an old man, old man, he's showing his heart is for the young people of God and for the people God's called him to be a part of, his church. As a matter of fact, John has such a deep value for being connected to a local church, loving the church, basically at another point in the same letter. He says, if you can't love the people around you, meaning the Christians, don't call yourself a believer. Don't do it. See, a Christian has a home, 
not just in Jesus, yes, but also with his fellow Christians. I mean, doesn't the Bible call us, doesn't Paul call us uh, this relational temple, like this whole living space, a house that God comes and dwells when we're together? It does. I mean, think about that. The New Testament writers say over and over again, they insist you cannot meet God all on your own to the degree you can when you're connected to his people. That's humbling, isn't it? Staggering. You know, it's popular to say today, I love Jesus, but not his church. And I'm going to push you on that thought just for a moment because I understand church can be messy. And do you know why I can say that? It's because I know you. (laughs) And you know me. You're messy. I'm messy. We're messy. In the same way that families are messy together. And if you were to say to me, Morgan, man, I love you. You're great. But your wife, oh, man, she's a piece of work. Can't stand being around her. She's about the worst thing I've ever seen. God, I can't stand her. I'm going to go online write a bunch of blogs about her online. But how bad she is. People should stay away from her. But I love you, Morgan. We should totally be friends. You know what's going to happen? <laughs> a kind way of putting it would be, I'm going to love you like Bette Midler loves you from a distance. <laughs> you just distance yourself from me. See? How do you think Jesus feels when people drag his bride, which by the way is you, through the mud? Do your children have a value in their hearts for the local church. Where do you think they would pick that up from, mom, dad? Probably from you. And here's why, therefore, you can and should put your, those things in, our, in your children. It's because Jesus has put those things in us. See, he, for the hope, for the joy set before him, he set himself apart. He said, I sanctify myself. Why? Not because he wasn't already holy. Oh, he lived a pure and holy life. He said, for the sake of those who are to come, I sanctify myself. I set myself apart for other people. Who's that? You and me. He had hope in his heart for us, set himself apart for us, and has made us a home for his heart. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. When your children are out in life, they're hiking their way out through life, what are they going to be able to pull out? Hmm? It's whatever we put in them, isn't it? So let's pack some hope, uh, some holiness, and a heart for home. And if those things were good enough, For the apostle John to pack into his children, their children, he said. They're good enough for us. Can you say amen? Let me close in prayer. Let me pray for you. Lord, thank you. Thank you for these people today. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you for every amazing parent here, every student here. Lord, would you impart these things to us today? Let us value hope, holiness, Lord, in the place that you call your, your home, which is your people. In Jesus' name, amen.